Hello and welcome back to Braindump. I hope uh, lockdown is treating you okay and you're all keeping yourselves entertained. Uh, this week on Braindump we have Joe Matthews and he's going to talk to us about behaviour changes, smoking cessation and uh, lots lots more. Really, really fascinating. I really, really enjoyed this episode. Um, I'm excited to see what you guys think of it. Once again, big thank you for Monty for editing it all up. He's done a grand job. Uh, and uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoy. Without further ado, here's Joe. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Brain Dump. This is a podcast where we talk about life from the meaningful to the extreme. Firstly, Joe, so tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Joe and I am currently doing a PhD studentship in digital health and care. So typically people would do their PhD a lot earlier on in their career, like a lot of the time straight after their undergraduate degree or master's degree. But I've kind of taken like a longer path working in academia to get there, mainly because I wanted to decide this is actually what I want to do. If I'm going to spend four years studying something, it has to be the right thing. Mm -hmm. The tricky part about academia in general is you start off very, very broad in a general subject area. And as things get more specific, you're like, well, actually, I think I'd rather be doing that and rather be doing that. And yeah, I can completely relate to that. It's quite difficult. Exactly. You go into academia, it's because you're interested in like you're interested in science, for example, Mm -hmm. in like in my area. But the nature of that is that you get distracted all the time by other th- cool things that are going on in science that's outside of your own area. I spend a lot of my time procrastinating about reading other things other than my own research interests. I think that's really healthy as well. It gives you a much bigger picture on what else is going on and how that is applicable to what you're studying. Exactly. And you learn from it as well. Like You, you can learn from other areas of science. And I think that's a really important thing that like science doesn't often do. We don't often learn from like different domains of science because everything overlaps in reality. Okay, so we're going to sort of focus mainly on behaviour changes. But if what sort of first generated your interest in psychology and behaviour in general? I did sports and exercise science as my undergraduate degree. And that was with the ultimate aim of becoming a PE teacher. That's that's what I wanted to do. I'd worked as kind of like a PE teacher assistant before going to university and I was certain that's what I wanted to do. And then I had this one lecture, I think it might have been in my second year at university, and it was about health and chronic disease. So stuff like type 2 diabetes, lung cancer, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I just found it fascinating how as human beings we partake in behaviors that we know we objectively know are damaging us Mm -hmm. but yet we still do it and I myself do it all the Mm -hmm. time I probably I probably drink too much I'm fairly active but I don't often eat the best especially after a few beers so it's why do we do that why do we engage in those behaviors so that's Mm -hmm. what got me really interested in that kind of area that's fascinating I recognize these maladaptive coping mechanisms or it is pure pleasure seeking that are detrimental to our health yet I'm fully aware I do it and I still partake it's fascinating that um it was a particular insight from a person that you've then found an interest through your education yeah exactly it's great that education can do that I'm not your box standard like academic this was never part of the plan to go down this route in some in many ways I've kind of fallen into it but I suppose it's better to like fall into it well because of your own interest than just like following a career for sure okay do you think our education system should include basic material on on behaviors to better prepare ourselves or understand ourselves and sort of explain unhelpful behaviors later on in in our lives yeah, I think think we need to look at the syllabus first and foremost. So, for example, if you take cooking, with I don't know what it's called now. It used to be called home economics back in the day. I don't know what it's called now. But when I was at school, we got taught how to make cakes. 
that's what we got taught mm-hmm. to do. So that's, that's a really energy dense food, for example. Yeah. And I think there's been a slight shift in that now. We're looking at healthier eating within schools, which is really good. And there's been like an agenda set out initially by like Jamie Oliver, for example. Mm-hmm. He was a massive advocate for that and actually did a really good job in number one, changing meals within schools, but also preparing children and like adolescents into making healthier dishes, for example. So that's a really positive step. And if we take PE, for example, physical education, it's not really physical education. Mm-hmm. What it is, it's sport education. The majority of activities within the physical education syllabus are sport based. Mm-hmm. If you look at society in general, the statistics suggest not, that not many people actually enjoy playing sport. Mm-hmm. Like it's maybe about 30% engage in regular sport. A lot of the time you're putting people off physical activity mm-hmm. by making it so sport structured. A third area that we need to look at within the school system is how we teach science in general and make it more applicable. So I spent a whole term learning about osmosis, for example, mm-hmm. which is interesting, but it's not related to our own health, for example. Biology within the school-based setting could be more applicable to our own health, considering that we are essentially in a global negative health epidemic. When you look at obesity, um, smoking behaviours, alcohol consumption and all of that, I think it'd be really beneficial if we learned more about that in schools. It's so true. When when I come out of my master's and was like, oh, I know a lot about biology, but that application to the real world is so minuscule. Another aspect of education that I really wish there was was learning to pay taxes and paying rent for the first time. And I think university is a great way of easing you into that. You know, you have an institution that looks after you on a lot of fronts, but allows you to grow in other areas of your life. Learning those things at school, so the importance of physical activity, but not necessarily sport per se, and encourage people to have a healthy mindset around that would be incredibly beneficial. So do you think something like a psychology understanding behavior should be a more of a core subject uh, in education? Potentially, I think it's really complex because obviously psychology as a subject is incredibly well established. With behavior change, we're still not actually that successful in it. Like smoking smoking is objectively, especially within the UK, best thing we've done in terms of behavior change Mm -hmm. because we've hit it from various different points like so we've done like the really big level stuff where the government's got involved with government legislation but also we've got really good on the micro level as well in terms of educating people and so on to teach it in schools is such a complex subject that you're asking academic staff within that school within that school environment to understand and deliver it i think that's a tough task considering Mm -hmm. a lot of people in academia that work in the area still don't really have the answers but i do think it's really important to maybe highlight how certain negative health behaviors are driven for example why do people smoke and why do certain demographics smoke more than other demographics for example Mm -hmm. if you are from a a socioeconomic area of deprivation you're twice as likely to smoke than if you're middle class for example that kind of stuff there's there's room for that to be discussed within a school-based setting but I think that brings it out broader societal level as well Mm -hmm. but yeah potentially I just think it's such a complex thing to try and communicate within that school-based environment. It certainly sounds it. It's much bigger a subject here than I could have anticipated. What did you do your master's degree in and was there a particular progression into research that drew you to Worcester University? So I actually did my master's degree at the University of Gloucestershire. 
Um, and that was in physical activity and public health, because that's that's what I was really interested in. Um, I was really interested in how you could uh, reduce sedentary behaviour, because there's evidence now, for example, that suggests that if you live a sedentary lifestyle, that can be just as damaging as smoking five to ten cigarettes a day, for example. So I was really interested in that. I got involved at some research within the University of Gloucestershire, and then I was lucky enough to get a lectureship at Worcester University, a part-time lecturer role. But that took me more to back towards the sports and exercise science stuff I was previously doing so I didn't enjoy that as much to be honest because it was away from my interest but I think at that stage in your career you kind of got to say yes to every single opportunity because it is a difficult place to be mm. academia at times so you've just got to say yes to everything really. Uh, academia is very much a, a sharky shark world and I don't think yeah, a lot definitely. of people appreciate that either people think oh it's you know just a load of people studying but it's a it's tough it's competitive i remember even at just a master's level you're with some high flying uh, people and the next step after that is that's where i tapped out <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, I completely understand that. And I think the the worst thing about academia, it breeds an environment in which you can constantly compare yourself to others because there's that system of like, you get a grade for this, you get a grade for that. I think sometimes it can actually be a really negative place to be in terms of an individual's mental health, for example. Mm -hmm. Like I think if you look at the rates of mental health issues within certain industries, academia is one of the leaders in that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think also there's a lot of very intelligent people. You can get caught up in the wrong kind of mindset and overthink things in the wrong way. But that is a whole other podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) no um okay well uh that sounds really interesting particularly the evidence on being sedentary listen to a podcast the other day about how um how detrimental that is to your health but it's interesting that that's not really a commonly known thing Uh, a lot of people see just sitting down as okay but when you're working an office job and you're sitting down for seven hours a day the consequences of that can be pretty dire yeah, definitely, definitely. There's more and more research going into these. Have you seen these standing desks? Yeah, there's a lot of research going into that now because people are starting to wake up into the in terms of the issues of sedentary behaviour. But I think the the issue with it is that a lot of the time the evidence and the research around sedentary behaviour gets kind of swept up and wrapped up in the obesity epidemic debate when actually in isolation from uh, weight gain and obesity, if physical activity was a a pill if you could get all the benefits from physical activity in a pill form every government would give it out for free because it gives you that many benefits so it released that much burden on the healthcare system because of the benefits of it but i think so many people just look at it in terms of keeping off the weight as opposed to the other benefits of mm-hmm. it it's about informing people more so of those benefits i think oh massively is it responsible for things like circadian rhythms and yeah hormone management or homeostasis and things yeah it's fascinating i read a book called why we sleep by matt walker and he talks about the impact of uh, exercise on your sleep, but he always talks about how you know sleep is effective in other areas. But yeah, the two are very, very combined. What did you most enjoy about your research at master level and how did that affect your academic choices after that? So I got involved with some research there, behavior change intervention called uh, Fans for Life. And it was based at Bristol Rovers Football Club. And the idea was, is that you utilize the football club within the community as an asset we know that for example males in general of a certain age and a certain demographic are less likely to seek help to change the behavior or less likely to seek treatment if they're ill Mm -hmm. so how do you try and engage these people if they don't really want to be engaged well football is predominantly a working class sport most of the fans are working class and most of the fans are male 
So that those are two, there's are two areas in which we're trying to target. So then you look at, okay, what well, can we use the football club in order to try and bring these people towards the intervention? Uh, this was originally done in Glasgow, I think, with Sally Wyke and a mm-hmm. few colleagues, um, Professor Sally Wyke, and they did it really successfully. I think it was called like Fit Fans in Train or something. And they found that if they could get uh, football fans to come to the football club and make the activities really gender sensitized. So when I say gender sensitized, I mean almost male specific to so talk about healthy eating but not in what would be stereotypical, typical or like, oh, you're watching your weight kind of thing. It's making it really gender sensitized. So just given the bare facts, keep bringing the football elements into it. And they found that 12 months after they did, took part in an eight month intervention, there was still a 5% reduction in body mass, which, which is what we consider clinically significant. So that's where you start seeing the health benefits. So that's how that was my first experience of actually working on an intervention. Yeah, I found it really interesting. And I was responsible for the qualitative aspects of it. So the interviews after after the program, so almost like a process evaluation, when you're speaking to individuals one on one about how something like that can change their lives, how it's given them more energy to play with their kids, how it's made them more productive at work, how they feel better mentally, all of these different things. then it kind of inspires you to do more and more of that kind of research. Uh, with kind of research like that, that you're getting that uh, immediate positive feedback from and seeing the actual results of it and the benefit that it's having on these people's lives. It's fascinating. How This must have been quite a big uh, research project. So this was actually quite a small one because this the, the one with the University of Gloucestershire at Bristol Rovers, it was a pilot study. Mm-hmm. We were essentially setting up to see if it worked, to see if fans would be engaged and to collect some preliminary data to see whether there's evidence of promise, if people actually do increase their physical activity, if people actually do lose weight. Um, And actually, we used the interviews as evidence to get £20,000 in further funding to kind of get it going a little bit more. Yeah, it was really interesting. It was a good size project for me to start off on, really, Mm -hmm. because it wasn't too daunting. There weren't like thousands of participants and there wasn't a massive data set. So it was, it was, yeah, it was quite good. And you got to know the participants a bit more. Mm-hmm. And where did that propel you to go in after that? At that point, I started looking for jobs within academia. Uh, so that's when I went for the lectureship at Worcester. And then I went for an interview as a smoking cessation advisor. Because mm-hmm. um, again, that was to do with behavior. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of wanted to get some practical experience mm-hmm. um, because I think it's, it's academia is great and you learn a lot of things. But I think you need to understand how the real world works. Uh, if you're going yeah. to design an intervention, you need to know how like what mechanisms are actually in place already. Academia is, is an incredible thing. But at the same time, uh, it is a bit of a bubble and you find that if all your education is through research papers, there is a bit of a disconnect there. Hence why things like podcasts are really useful when you, you get to talk to people like yourself and you get that knowledge straight from the, the source and you communicate that. But equally, I think it needs to go the other way as well. How did your degree influence the more practical role of changing people's behaviour when it comes to smoking? Both of my degrees really are around the physical activity area. So it was it was quite a eye-opening experience being involved in this in, in this environment because it's a completely different behaviour. I think it really helped me understand like the broader issues more in terms of changing an individual's behaviour, like barriers people experience, mm-hmm. because a, a lot of the barriers are the same, and a lot of the mechanisms for adopting certain behaviours are the same. Okay. Um, what fascinated me about working in the Stop Smoking Service was the one particular project they had going called, and it links back to one of your first questions about should there be more education in, in school? And this is when I, I really f- started to become aware of 
the choice architecture elements of behavior change. Mm -hmm. So this one project called the Assist Program. Okay. Um, basically, what what you do as a, as a stop smoking advisor or, or a team of stop smoking advisors, you go into a school, uh, you identify who are the most influential within a certain year group for example and like you say influential but really it just means the popular kids <laughs> and you do that by getting everyone to fill out everyone within that year group to fill out a questionnaire and the questionnaire has questions like oh name the top five people you respect and there's some d dummy questions in there as well so they don't know like who are your who are your five closest friends and so on then you get that data back you collate it and you identify who are the top 10 percent most influential within that year group then you take them away for two days on a training course and teach them about the negatives of smoking so you show them stuff like what kind of chemicals are in a cigarette and then you actually teach them how to dissolve that information through the year group now the idea is it's not like a formal intervention what it actually is it, it could just be two friends are having a conversation and one of them says to the other oh i, I wouldn't smoke that mate because of x and y and z mm -hmm. and then that's the idea behind it and it turns out it's exceptionally effective within mm -hmm. smoking that's and amazing. now that that same approach is now being adopted in physical activity. And that's how I moved to Bristol University because I had the experience working on this in a practical setting. They were in the exercise health and nutrition sciences mm -hmm. department at Bristol University. They advertised a job there that was essentially changing this pro the smoking program and seeing if it works in physical activity as mm -hmm. well within a school-based setting. So I think that's a really interesting example of the kind of research that's going on in behavior change. Mm -hmm. um, because I don't think many people know that that kind of thing is going on. That's incredible. It's almost like these behaviours are being socially communicated. And if you can almost socially communicate the reasons not to do the behaviour, it's really effective at, at spreading positive message, really. That's yeah, fantastic. exactly. So what is a smoking advisor and who would you generally work with in this role? Say if you want to quit smoking you can go to a stop smoking advisor now these used to be commissioned by the nhs but then uh now then it got switched to local authorities which means that the stop smoking service has kind of been decimated a little bit because what the tory government did is they switched all of the public health stuff from the nhs moved it into local authority while cutting most local authority budgets by about 50 percent. so there's not enough money smoking is one of the first behaviors to get chopped because people aren't that sympathetic towards smokers but mm -hmm. also people a lot of the time care more about their bins being collected or something like that as opposed to like funding these kind of things funded by the local authority now as a quitting smoker you'd go to maybe six to ten weeks worth of sessions on a weekly basis uh, and you'd receive like one-to-one -one support to stop smoking the stop smoking advisor has the authority to prescribe certain stop smoking medication so it could be nicotine replacement theory stuff like patches and a lot of the time you'll get this for free a drug called varicillin i think it's better known as champix which blocks the dopamine receptors in the brain so you no longer get that that pleasure from smoking a cigarette and over time you begin to really not like it and that helps you stop smoking so th these were introduced in 2001 and at that time our smoking prevalence was the same as the rest of Europe, about 27%. But like fast forward to 2016, uh, ours was around 15% and Europe's remained at around 27 to 24%. And that's not just down to stop smoking services. They reckon it's about 15% of the total quits within that time as a result of stop smoking services. But it, it was a really important part of that push of reducing mm -hmm. smoking prevalence within the UK because we did have a really big problem with it. For the, those listeners that don't know the biochemistry behind it, essentially tobacco is a vehicle to deliver nicotine into the body 
and once it's delivered into the body um, and it can be d done in a variety of ways the smoking is obviously you you absorb the nicotine through the lungs whereas a cigar you absorb it through the cheek lining because of the different acidity of the tobacco but bottom line is you still get nicotine that nicotine is delivered and it kind of uh, activates structures in the brain called receptors that then these receptors when activated they release a biochemical called dopamine which essentially makes you feel great so if you're missing out on that hit on a daily basis, it can make it really difficult to stop that behavior, especially when it's quite an acceptable behavior within society. It's changing a little bit now. There's slightly different perspectives on smoking. But 10, 15 years ago, it was, it was a normal, commonplace thing. The combination of a chemical addiction and social norms obviously plays quite a role. But as you said, we're, we're shifting in our perception of it. Why is the cessation of smoking important? Uh, what do you think encourages people to start smoking in the first place? And why is it so prevalent when people understand the underlying dangers to to health? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So smoking worldwide is the biggest cause of premature death that you can actively change. It's preventable, right? It costs the NHS. It used to cost a lot, lot more, but now it's still around 2.6 billion a year. And that's 2.6 billion pounds that could go to other things. And it's also people's standard of living. If, you, if you're smoking, you're, you're not, at some point, you will be affected by that habit. And it's really important. And we, there's more and more evidence to suggest that it affects your mental health now. So that's a burden on mental health services as well. It, and it's interlinked with loads of different things. So if you're a smoker, you're much more likely to engage in heavier um, caffeine consumption, heavier alcohol consumption, and just have a lot less healthier habits as well. In answer to your question, why do people initiate smoking behavior why why do people start i think it's too societal thing a lot of people engage in it because family members have previously engaged in it a lot of people engage in it because their friends are engaging it and i think a lot of people don't understand how addictive smoking can be like that dopamine release that pleasure seeking and that reward system that we've got in built in our brain is essentially there for us to survive that's originally why it's there right you get a huge dopamine hit when you have a high energy dense meal for example because your body wants to make sure that you continue doing that to stay alive mm -hmm. now if you're getting that high that dopamine high from something else that's when it gets really difficult so people think oh i'll only have a few cigarettes i won't get addicted and then bang they're addicted i think there's a perception now that we're kind of winning the battle in terms of like smoking prevalence in the uk and that is true we've done like fantastically well we're world leaders in this we're brilliant at it but we've got to be careful that we don't think the battle's won because it's still costing the nhs 2.6 billion a year right that's still a huge amount of money and smoking prevalence is still at about 15%. And that's still quite high for a population. So we're in danger of thinking the battle's won, I think, with smoking. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the differences between the UK smoking rates and Europe. Do you think culture plays a role in the level of smokers? Yes, 100%. So if you look at, and this is actually really interesting to talk about now in particular, while we're in the middle of like the COVID-19 uh, pandemic because if you look at the death rates of both Spain and Italy they're much higher than other European countries even though they've actually got quite draconian measures in place you're only allowed to walk your dog 200 meters for example you're really not in some areas of Italy you're like even allowed out for exercise so very different to what we're experiencing now so why are they experiencing higher death rates than us now one theory is that actually it's partly culture related okay they've got a really aging population but so does the UK so what else could it be 
And I think one theory is actually smoking prevalence. Smoking prevalence in both Spain and Italy is much, much higher than ours and much higher than a lot of the rest of Europe. What is really interesting there, that highlights the importance of culture on a behavior like smoking. Because what we're seeing now, those higher death rates could, like a flu that attacks the respiratory system, is now causing more deaths in those countries as a result of smoking. And that's partly because of that specific culture within those countries and the specific relationship with tobacco-based products. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good example of how a culture can significantly affect a country's health and well-being. Mm God, it's amazing to think about how a simple act of smoking that people enjoy in their pastime, as a result, you know, as you say, COVID-19 affects their respiratory sort of health so much more. Never even thought of that, but it makes a lot of sense. Do you believe that it's underfunded or misunderstood, smoking in general and, and mitigating it? I do think it's underfunded now. The switch from stop smoking services from the NHS into local authority was essentially a public health cut masquerading as something else yeah now what i would like to do in the future with my research is uh, develop a digital stop smoking service like a really tailored digital stop smoking service that you could tailor to the individual based on their current health behaviors so we know that caffeine consumption can make it harder during a quit attempt to give up smoking so there's an enzyme in the body called CYP1A2 and that enzyme is responsible for the metabolism of caffeine so breaking breaking caffeine down in the body cigarette smoke not nicotine it boosts the activity of this enzyme in the body so as a smoker you could probably consume more caffeine than a non-smoker and it wouldn't affect you as much you wouldn't get anxious you would get jittery and that kind of thing but when you stop smoking that effect is no longer happening so you stop smoking that enzyme is no longer being boosted by the cigarette smoke if you still drink the same amount of tea and coffee your caffeine levels rise and then you can become caffeine toxic which has identical symptoms to nicotine withdrawal so you're getting a double whammy as a smoker so what i'd like to do is use some machine learning some algorithms and so on to really tailor a stop smoking service to an individual while incorporating the traditional stop smoking mm-hmm. methods so you could have you could still have one-to-one support but that would be done over a webcam or over a smartphone for mm-hmm. example i think that's the way it needs to go because i don't think governments are going to fund smoking in the same way as they have done historically mm-hmm. so i think we need to become a little bit more novel in our approach to it there are smartphone apps that try and do it and there's websites that will try and help you quit smoking and they claim they're tailored to the individual but a lot of the time that can just be using your name for example they're mm-hmm. not really tailored to your own lifestyle mm-hmm. so i think that's the way it needs to go making it very accessible through uh, digital media would, would be very engaging with people and maybe even using things like 23andme and using people's genomes to figure out they're more genetically resistant or less resistant or more yeah exactly well that that's the way the research is going so i don't know if you've ever come across like mendelian randomization before no it's really really interesting so if you look at smoking for example we know smokers tend to die younger than non-smokers now we've got the data for that but there's lots of confounders in there so when i say confounders i just mean things that could affect the relationship that we think we're seeing so for example we know smokers are going to drink more we know they're probably going to have less healthy diet so is it those two things that are causing the early death or is it the actual smoking in the perfect world what you'd do is you'd have fifty thousand people and another fifty thousand people one of those groups one of those fifty thousand people you'd say smoke all you want and the other ones you'd say never smoke but that's neither practical or probably ethical either (laughs) but what you can do is you can look at genes so you can still have two groups of people so non-smokers and smokers but look at the genes are associated with heavier smoking and then what you can do is you can compare those two 
and then you can isolate, okay, this is the cause of smoking. So that's how you can identify whether there's a causal relationship. But what you could start doing as well is start looking at caffeine. So do exactly the same thing. Look at, okay, the gene that means you're more likely to consume more caffeine is related to higher smoking prevalence, for example. So you can start unpicking whether people are genetically predisposed to certain behaviours that will make it harder for them to quit smoking, which is really fascinating. And I think that's the area that loads of behaviour change is going to go down now, because we can actually start confirming causal relationships and also identifying causal relationships. Sleep and smoking is a massive one. So you, you said you read that book on sleep and like smoking is if you don't sleep as well in a night, you're five times more likely to relapse or experience higher nicotine withdrawal symptoms the next day mm -hmm. so there's an intervention there for example that's something that you'd be able to we need to look at and start thinking okay are we doing the right thing here the way behavior change is going is actually starting to look at multiple health behaviors at once mm -hmm. and how they influence and the mechanistic effect between them what's causing what and i think mendelian randomization will really help with that they say that a lot. It is all interlinked and it is all, uh, we used to think it is like a, a one hit wonder where you you impact this thing and that changes that. But actually we're realizing that it's all, all the homeostasis effect of the whole body is all interlinked. Exactly. Sleep and mental health, big ones saying, I always think when it comes to mental health, using Maslow's hierarchy of needs of sorting out the things that you can control first because things like good diet, exercise, sleep, those are in your control. And then it makes the battle against mental health a little bit easier. So I can imagine the same effect when it comes to, say, quitting smoking or other exactly. you know, behaviours like that. Do you have any other current behaviours in society that are sort of socially accepted but may need intervention other than smoking? So sedentary behaviour, big mm -hmm. one. I think another massive one is alcohol consumption. It is so, so ingrained within our society and... The alcohol industry, I think, is the biggest lobby within the UK. So it's very difficult to make the changes that are necessary to reduce our alcohol consumption. Knowledge isn't enough, right? So I used to work in the tobacco and alcohol research group at Bristol University. And I know, looking at all the guidelines available, I know I drink too much. And, well, we all do. The only safe amount... I was reading a book recently is one glass of wine a year, which is just just crazy. And I tell you, <laughs> and I think during this pandemic, this social isolation, mm. my alcohol consumption has gone up. But um, but the my point is that with the alcohol lobby is that we've been so successful with a, a behavior like smoking. Government legislation has been a massive, massive part in that banning smoking in pubs raising the age to purchase cigarettes from 16 to 18 and also different things so like standardized packaging all of these things not one single one of them has made a massive difference by themselves but all together you start to see a really concerted effort which has changed people's behavior that's why we're the most successful in the world at reducing smoking prevalence with our country smoking packaging one is really interesting that's research that was actually done within bristol university you'll notice they're all standardized now mm -hmm. every every cigarette pack looks exactly the same and that same dark horrible green color yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The reason for that is twofold. Without the branding, it stops people being influenced by thinking some cigarette brands are more healthy than other cigarette brands like mm -hmm. Lotar and so on, which just isn't true. The other thing, it's that color because your eyes are more attracted to the health warning. That research was done by, I think, Olivia Maynard at Bristol University. And what she did, she uses eye tracking with a variety of different health warnings and different colors and saw which one your eyes were more likely to go to. So you've got all these things influencing the behavior. Mm -hmm. 
with the alcohol lobby being so massive within this country, makes it very difficult to make legislative changes like we have done with smoking, mm-hmm. because it's it's even more ingrained within our culture. And you've seen that with minimum unit pricing in Scotland. That is objectively, that has been effective. But you get a fight back from the lobby and supporters of that lobby and people that are funded by the lobby. And they'll just, you'll hear it a hundred times, constantly, constantly. The nanny state this, the government interfere in our lives. It's the poorest in society that's going to be affected by this more. And, and most of those things just simply aren't the case. So I think alcohol's the next big challenge because alcohol affects everything from mental health, liver, obesity, all of these things. It's how do you do that against one of the most powerful lobbies in the world? So mm-hmm. just an example of how cynical it can get. This is anecdotal. I don't know whether this is 100% true, but I was told by a professor that this is the case. They make beer glasses so attractive and so different from one another that they actually want people to steal them from pubs. So they genuinely do. That's why they give away glasses for free and so on, because they want people to nick them from pubs and have them in the home because that's a form of free advertising. Mm-hmm. This is how cynical these massive industries can be. Mm-hmm. But we are starting to fight back. Again, at Bristol University, there's a choice architecture study. So uh, for those that don't know, it's like a method of nudging human behavior on a micro level. So industry has been doing this for years. So supermarkets, for example, every single supermarket is laid out virtually the same. You have the fruit and veg at the front. And you have like bargains on the end of aisles because people are more attracted to that. And you have all the chocolate bars and magazines, those impulse purchases at the till. Mm -hmm. So all of that is based on study. All of that is nudging people's behavior. Now, we're starting in academia to catch up with this a little bit. So we're using choice architecture like that to our advantage now. There's one study that looks at glass shape. Now, we tested this in the lab. You'd see in pubs now you get quite a lot of curved glasses. I'm thinking of like the Stella Artois. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. It's almost like a goblet more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> and there's evidence to suggest that actually drinking from a curved glass as opposed to a straight glass speeds up your drinking and you're more likely to drink more. We tested that in a lab and that was correct. You drink slower from a perfectly straight glass. So now what we're doing is we're going into pubs and for two weeks we switch with their glasses and give them perfectly straight pint glasses. And then two weeks later we'll switch them back to their, their normal glasses. And we, we look at the difference between the takings that they've received, whether they go up or down or what Mm -hmm. so that's the kind of thing that we're starting to look at but the industry have led the way on this for years private industry is way ahead of us absolutely mind-blowing to think small changes like that can influence you on a personal level so dramatically and you're not even aware of it oh we all know about impulse even when you're aware of it you can still be a sucker and be like oh i want a chocolate bar or whatever but it's amazing that these large corporations they have the money to be able to do the research into things to maximize their own sales and it kind of it's a bit disheartening when you think that the most amount of research is just where the profit is and where they can make the most money supermarkets i think they're the best example of choice architecture they don't get taught enough about in this context because there's a lot health and well-being professionals we can learn from any supermarket you go into say if you're buying chopped tomatoes in your eye line there'll be all the branded chopped tomatoes, all the expensive ones. And the the Tesco-owned brand ones or the Sainsbury's brand ones are always at the bottom. And the reason for that is twofold. They're not in your eye line, so you're less likely to clock them and purchase those ones. But also, human beings associate kneeling down or bending down with something quite uncomfortable to do in mm-hmm. the public. So it actually, it reduces the likelihood that someone's going to do that. So they're nudging you all the time to go for the more expensive product. That kind of stuff, if we can harness that kind of methodology and that kind of thinking but put it in a behavior change context Mm -hmm. then we can start really getting somewhere how do you think programs for smoking cessation can be generally applied to behavior 
or do you think it's dangerous to generalize uh, behavioral change research? This is twofold. So if you look at tobacco control policies, we can implement very similar ones on variety of health behaviors. Alcohol, for example, like minimum unit pricing or high taxation, as we did with cigarettes. Likewise, with fast food or energy dense food, the sugar tax, for example. Now, the sugar tax won't stop people buying chocolate, but what it does, it influences the manufacturers to put less sugar in there so they can keep their prices down. Mm -hmm. So those government legislation moves are definitely feasible to tackle other areas of behavior change. But what is more difficult is to apply stop smoking behavior change theory to other health behaviors because with smoking you're asking someone to quit a habit for example whereas with physical activity you're trying to engage people into a certain behavior mm -hmm. And it's very difficult, but there are some studies that are doing it. So as I mentioned previously, the study program that goes into secondary schools and prevent children from initiating smoking behavior by essentially getting the popular kids to disseminate yeah. that message. We're now using that within physical activity. And the evidence suggests that it's kind of working the feasibility studies result. If you're uh, an adolescent girl, your physical activity levels drop off significantly as soon as you hit secondary school. It's a big issue. And it's mainly seen within adolescent girls. So identify the popular adolescent girls within a year group, train them up in physical activity methods and get them to disseminate information, disseminate the benefits of it, all of that kind of thing within their year group. You see that the physical activity doesn't increase, but it makes the decline less steep. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of how you can actually utilize a method of behavior change that was originally designed for smoking behavior, but transfer it to another mm -hmm. health behavior such as physical activity. But it is difficult to do that. It brings us on to what we were saying at the very beginning of where you can actually learn a lot from other domains of science. I think that a lot of the time at universities, there's these invisible walls built up between departments because funding is the priority and you don't want to let a good idea go, right? We're starting to get away from that in science now and i think we're starting to learn from a lot of other disciplines which is really positive mm -hmm. no massively incredibly exciting with behavior change there's like almost two methods there's a carrot or the stick so motivating people by reward or punishing yes. them with a stick uh, and I, yeah. I like that kind of philosophy i know how to motivate myself to train through different methods and so you're almost creating your own behavior towards a particular reason using carrot or stick how easy do you think it is to change behavior patterns in general really difficult really difficult <laughs> And we're not that successful in it. We're really not that successful in it. Take smoking out the equation. We really struggle in other health behaviors. It's because it's so complex. We're discussing genes earlier. So we know that genes influence your behavior. So we know that. We know your biochemistry influences your behavior. We know social norms influence your behavior. We know your gender influences your behavior. We know to a certain extent your microbiome could potentially influence your behavior. So how do you possibly design intervention? that hits all of those. Mm -hmm. You can't really do it. But what you can do is you can have multiple interventions from a massive government-based level, but also on a micro level. So what you can have power over is the environment that everyone lives. And that's where choice architecture gets in. So say if all pubs have straight glasses, then we might see a reduction in alcohol consumption. That's unlikely because I can't see the government changing that anytime soon. But if you could make office blocks, for example, if you can make the stairwells more attractive to walk up, or if you could have like a digital calorie counter at the top of each one or, or something along those lines, make a corridor more attractive to walk down rather than taking an elevator or something like that. 
These are the little changes that we can make in our environment that will really make a difference. There's a train station in, I think, I believe it's Russia, that if you do 10 squats in front of the ticket booth, you get a free ticket for that journey. And it's little things like that in isolation that won't make a big difference. But if you have multiple things like that throughout your day, that will start to make a difference on a population-based level. And I think that's the way we have to go. So choice architecture is definitely, definitely a really interesting thing that is really actually still quite in the early stages. Really, really fascinating. My concern with choice architecture is whether it could be used to almost control people's behavior. Benches with spikes on to stop homeless people sitting there or uh, ledges with little uh, metal snubs on so skateboarders can't use it. Now, obviously, these are behaviors that governments would want to control but do you think there's any way that choice architecture could be almost negative in a way for people's behavior yes not within the health domain i think the rationale behind the majority of choice architecture in the health domain is both logical and ethical Mm -hmm. Uh, i haven't come across a study that you think oh that's that's a bit controlling it's nudging very slightly nudging people's behavior one other interest i have is politics and in particular voting intention right so Voting intention, you could argue, is a behavior just like any other behavior. And that can be manipulated by choice architecture. And we saw that with Cambridge Analytica, for example. Mm-hmm. So you could identify the the kind of person someone was by their likes on Facebook and uh, what groups they followed and so on. And then you could target a certain political message, whether it's fake news or not, to an individual that you know it will get more effect from that type of individual. And that's choice architecture. You are essentially nudging someone's voting behavior by implementing those strategies. And that's where choice architecture has a really negative, and it doesn't get talked about as choice architecture Mm -hmm. because it's unknown within that political domain. But that is essentially what it is. That's where it gets scary. Mm -hmm. I've banged on about this a lot to my friends, but um, there's a YouTube account called Smarter Every Day, and he did a uh, a four-part series on social media algorithms and it talks about how you can manipulate public mainstream media to pump out a message to target audience that you want to capture and in this case they use fake news to generate kind of animosity group of people who are hating on a particular agenda which is completely fake but because they worked out information about people and ways to get through the algorithms that are meant to counter these platforms like Twitter, YouTube and things that they've created these angry mobs on online over matters that are completely fake and not legit purely because they've they've ticked the right buttons of what these people are interested or not interested in a hundred percent a hundred percent and you see exactly those tactics in industry as well what the food industry will do is their number one goal is to get us to buy as much of their product as possible that is their only goal when there is started to be become increased uh, societal awareness of the obesity epidemic and the, the impact of certain types of food on that, whether it would be high carbohydrate meals, high sugar based snacks, all of those kind of things. They need to protect themselves, right? A way to do that is start providing misinformation. My background is in physical activity research. That's what I'm really interested in as well. But there's no way that I think physical activity alone is going to solve the obesity crisis because it just isn't. Every single food industry lobbyist you'll see is it's they'll constantly talk about moderation. So they'll always say the word moderation, which their products are designed not. You you can't eat. Who has five Pringles? 
you don't have five Pringles, do you? Like, if you have one biscuit, you're more likely to have five biscuits because it's, it's, it's a similar thing. It's that dopamine hit again. It's mm-hmm. that reward trigger, right? It's really difficult to have these products in moderation. But they'll always say, no, our product is fine in moderation. And the second word they then say after that is exercise. They want to blame sedentary behavior and not the energy-dense foods that they're supplying. Mm-hmm. But what they can now do is target individuals online with these kind of messages based on those algorithms that you that you discussed. Mm-hmm. And that's where it can get a bit dangerous. But I think it's, it's just misinformation in general is dangerous, right? But I think where it gets quite cynical is where food industries are, are funding certain scientists out there to carry out studies that support their argument. Because at the end of the day, you can make data say what you want. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think that's where I lose a little bit of faith sometimes. And we were talking about this earlier about how big lobbyist companies can afford to pump money into research as long as it proves the argument they want to prove or at least ship the responsibility elsewhere exactly. uh, and then that's when you have these issues of like oh well you know sedentary lifestyle is bad for you but eat as many biscuits as you like <laughs> yeah 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 exactly that and obviously there's massive pros of physical activity i'm the biggest advocate i think if, if you could get an individual to change one thing if they're sedentary and make them physically active that's going to benefit their health almost more than anything else. Mm -hmm. But it's not the answer to the obesity epidemic at all. Mm -hmm. What are sort of the key signs for an unhealthy repetitive behavior? It varies. So for example, in alcohol, one would be if you start utilizing that particular behavior as a stress coping mechanism. Well, smoking as well. Smoking is a prime example of how it's actually counterintuitive. So everyone says, in a stressful moment, if you're a smoker, you often have a cigarette or if you, even if you're like an ex-smoker, you often have a cigarette in times of high stress. That's actually counterintuitive because we know smoking, having a cigarette puts your body under an instance of stress. It acutely raises your blood pressure. So that is the opposite of relaxation in terms of physiologically. But also what we know is that actually it's not necessarily the smoking that is making you less stressed it's actually the breathing because you breathe slower as you're inhaling a cigarette so that's what's calming you down it's not actually the cigarette but the two are associated that's a sign of a negative behavior if you're using it to deal with stress and i also think if if it's affecting your life in a negative way that you and others can definitely perceive that's when a behavior is becoming potentially an issue and that could be a positive behavior so so there's like a growing area of research looking into exercise dependence and exercise addiction because some people are literally exercising themselves into the ground and like exercise is an absolutely fantastic thing for your body but if it's actually starting to affect your life in a negative way then is it so good mm-hmm. so i think that's how you'd identify whether a behavior is particularly detrimental and in particular if it's affecting your health and if you feel like you have no control over it that's when it becomes a big issue interesting you say that i because i can certainly resonate exercise addiction uh, and a part of my life you're hitting the nail on the head there where it was an absolute compulsion i had to exercise i would get really paranoid stressed and angry if i then couldn't have access to exercise of some kind i couldn't train for some reason then i would make up for it in a a particular big big session of exercise the behavior is overriding your own rational thought and and taking away from your life because that behavior is now replacing aspects of your life exactly what uh, makes it easier for people to implement change in their own behavior changing your environment as best you can Mm -hmm. and small steps what people tend to do i think and we see it every single january like there's a huge rush on gyms right and people do it for two weeks and they stop because they go 
absolutely crazy for two weeks and they're loving it they think they've changed their life and then it's too hard to maintain it's small changes that over time can be built up and they have to be realistic they have to be able to fit in with your your existing life the other thing is is changing your own environment to stop you to make give yourself the best chance of changing that particular behavior you want to change for example if you're a quitting smoker and your spouse still smokes or someone in your house still smokes you're 80 percent more likely to relapse now i'm not suggesting you should get divorced to stop smoking <laughs> but that's an example of how the environment that you're living in can affect mm-hmm. that behavior change and if you're if you're on a diet don't have loads of energy dense food in the house because mm-hmm. it's there and mm-hmm. you, you are good but if you remove that from the house that's just one less barrier for you to overcome in changing that behavior mm-hmm. if you don't eat crap don't bring crap into the house that's exactly golden rule yeah okay what do you expect uh, to be involved in research or do you envisage a career for yourself differently in, in the future i'd like to stay in academia mm-hmm. because i i'm really passionate about this area and I'm not particularly driven by money and like if, if you're not just quite helpful being in academia <laughs> yeah I'm not driven by money I'm I'm driven by looking at stuff I'm interested in every day because that's brilliant right if you if like you're getting paid to learn that's you can't really ask much more than that mm-hmm. so yeah and I'm really interested in how we can utilize digital technology to really start changing human behavior mm-hmm. and there's a lot of exciting stuff going on using digital technology there's i think felix norton at the university of east anglia he's doing some really cool stuff with smartphones and helping people stop smoking using gps location Mm -hmm. so you can start to identify where individuals are smoking so for two weeks before they quit every time they have a cigarette they just tell you and you use that you map that on a gps tracker so then you can actually identify areas of high risk and then you could target a message if that individual is, is near a pub mm-hmm. or is in a pub, you can target a message saying stay strong or something along those lines. There's mm-hmm. more evidence, there's more research that needs to go into what those messages would entail. That's really cool. And that's something that we can do that isn't going to be a game changer in terms of behavior change, but it's loads of little things like that that incrementally build, mm-hmm. build up. It's kind of like the black box thinking approach, mm-hmm. just incremental changes all the time. It's like that marginal gains. And mm-hmm. that's the way to look at behavior change, I think, it, as a scientist, is not one thing is going to completely revolutionize the field but all of this together those marginal gains will start really paying off Mm -hmm. that's awesome can you outline what you're currently studying so yeah the phd is digital health and care so right now i'm completing a master's degree which is really difficult because it's essentially an engineering master's degree and as someone that doesn't have a background in engineering it is absolutely mind-blowing a lot of the time i'm sat in the back of the lecture thinking i honestly there's been lectures i've been in and i've I've understood eight words and like (laughs) And you're there thinking, how have I got to this? What is going on here? But it has been really useful. I'm learning a lot of machine learning stuff. I'm learning a lot about biochemistry and stuff like that as well. But my area of research that I want to go into is looking at sleep and smoking. And uh, in particular, developing a digital sleep intervention targeting smokers because we know there's a big association with sleep and smoking we know that from the mendelian randomization i was talking about that's the area i want to go into can you just explain what choice architecture is um so it's the method of nudging human behavior but on a micro level so it's it's essentially manipulating people's decision-making processes so it's unconscious decision-making so there's conscious decision-making that we engage with all the time but there's also unconscious decision-making that we engage with in all the time but are not aware of it and what choice architecture does is it it manipulates the unconscious decisions Mm -hmm. that's the way i'd put it 
okay. it manipulates the unconscious decisions that human beings have that subconscious level that you're not even aware of is being manipulated and hopefully yeah. always ethically as well <laughs> yeah well i think the beer glass example is the best the best example of this because that's not a decision right but that's mm-hmm. unconsciously manipulating your behavior you can assess how much is left in your glass more accurately in a straight glass as mm-hmm. opposed to a curved glass but no one's drinking the beer and going oh i've got about this left now <laughs> it's an unconscious thing and sort of looking at behavior science in general digitalizing it and sort of gen- genomic research as well is there any other future research that might be addressed in this area it's really difficult to predict it more things are going to come about in choice architecture there's going to be a lot more research in that area because it looks really promising mendelian randomization will open up a huge area of in the future are we going to be able to identify someone's risk score for certain behaviors based on their gene type Mm -hmm. and then can you develop an intervention around that that's really fascinating but i think the more you dig into anything like this the more you realize a that what you personally don't know is massive. The more I get interested in something, the more I realize that I know nothing about it. But I think that's also applicable to science. There's so much stuff that we're currently doing within practice that might not actually be right, but we've just done it that way for 25 years. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at people's gene type and whether we can start breaking that down a little bit more because we already know quite a lot about it but i think there's a lot more to come from that area Mm -hmm. on making it really tailoring an an intervention to an individual based on both their biochemistry gene type and what their own personal social norms are in and around them oh sweet okay can you recommend any books or resources that people might want to read or look into find out a bit more i can recommend how to quit smoking by robert professor robert west i should say is pretty much the guy behind the stop smoking service the majority of his research that fed into that and that book's really really good in terms of explaining some of the mechanisms behind it but also to give yourself the best chance of smoking if that's what you're interested in Mm -hmm. of stopping smoking but there's one i want to highlight the effect biochemistry has on behavior and genes have on behavior and it's not a massive part of this book but drink by professor david nutt is really good so david nutt is actually the scientist that got sacked by the government for suggesting that i think we should legalize marijuana but also that horse riding was more dangerous than mdma use he got sacked by that i think it was the labor government but this book is really good in terms of bearing a little bit deeper into the biochemistry of alcohol how that can affect your own behavior and i think that then is a really good foundation of understanding how biochemistry affects our behaviors just as much as anything else. And actually, we need to get away from this myth of willpower. Willpower is great for some people. Willpower works. Like, you always hear it. You always... My granddad, for example, I think he quit smoking literally as part of a bet. Not, not, not like, he literally stopped and then didn't smoke again. No but, like, not everyone is going to be as stubborn as my granddad was. <laughs> yeah. We need to understand that it's biochemistry driving a lot of our behaviours and it's not a willpower-based thing. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. It sounds pretty, uh, pretty insightful. Uh, finally, do you have any take-home pointers for listeners? The biggest one would be aware of the environment around you and how that is potentially being utilised to influence your decision-making processes, either consciously or unconsciously, in particular within health. Fantastic, Joe. This has been 
phenomenally interesting i've been an absolute pleasure to have you on so thank you so much really really well, appreciate thank you. It. It's, it's, yeah it's been a real pleasure mate that was awesome i'm yeah i learned so much in that podcast that's so oh, cool brilliant, brilliant. Really yeah i've really enjoyed it it's nice actually talking about stuff like this because then you realize how interested you're in it because mm-hmm. sometimes when you're working on it day in day out you just think fuck me this is shit <laughs> but, <laughs> but like when you can actually have a discussion like this you're actually oh no it's, i actually do enjoy it mm-hmm. you yeah. translate it in a way that i'm sure it's like 10 times more complicated but you put it in a way that everyone can understand that's the art of science communication which you've really oh, got done it. enough it's so frustrating mm. you don't need to use big words all the time and stuff mm. like that i think there's a lot of ego based stuff oh 100 percent, and that's what i really struggle with so i'm dyslexic but have a huge passion for science and i absolutely love it it was such a barrier pushing it further where I thought, well, a podcast doesn't require any writing and I can just learn from people and transmit a message across to other people about, yeah, it's been so useful. But that's such a shame, though, because what ha- what actually happens is people get a bit alienated from science in that way in academia. And you actually miss out on a lot of really good people that would actually benefit academia as a whole. Mm-hmm. And the other issue is class within academia. The majority of people are middle class or upper middle class. Mm-hmm. I'm not classes by any stretch of the imagination, but that's only a negative for any industry. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. You have to have more people from a background that is of the people that you're actually trying to Mm -hmm. target you know but anyway thanks mate i really appreciate this Awesome. So that, that does it for this week's episode of Brain Dump. Thank you for tuning in once again. Uh, please let us know what you think and uh, involved in the Brain Dump group. That's where all the discussions are going down on all kinds of things. Uh, and I hope you guys continue to stay entertained in uh, lockdown. Big thank you to Joe and a huge thank you for Monty. He's always the wizard behind the scenes doing all the editing. So really appreciate his hard work. Uh, yeah. Until next time. Take care. Bye.